Welcome to Behind the White Scarves. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to Behind the White Scarves. And we are finally going to cover the rest of the many questions we have for Alex Shaw regarding his latest magnum opus, Panther Soul. It's you say latest going- magnum opus like people wrote magnum opuses all the time. <laughs> no. Alex, you have several in your library. I think we can give it the category of latest. Okay. Okay. okay, thank you. You're very kind. Ah, <laughs> oh, yep, another magnum opus. Yep, just uh, churning out for you. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Sorry. This, okay, carry this on. This interview has a different flavour to it. It might just be that this is the first time I'm talking with someone who I have now got the pleasure of having met in person. Ah, mm. yes. It was very nice to see you the other day. I shan't go in depth about it and the many questions I asked you about New Century I shall not repeat on air because there are confidential secrets do I not like say what happens to <laughs> <laughs> great now we're at we're already gonna have to cut something out because we haven't got <laughs> oh, of course hang on um okay do not <laughs> what happened to mm-hmm. I shall not I mean that even still honestly I'm just gonna do what I did last time and so Leap the shit out of that thing. Cool, cool. <laughs> Let's start strong. Alex, you always worked hard at making your cast diverse, but this is also the first time that might have played into your lived experience. Do you feel comfortable talking about the decision to make Colo bisexual as someone that has at least earmarked that you are also bisexual whenever it's come up? Robin was bisexual. He just didn't advertise it as much as he uh, probably should have. <laughs> in fact, no. there's probably a couple of others as well. Right, but my point is, is that in the past, it's never you never put a lot of attention mm. onto the more complicated sexualities. And between Stone Spring Maidens and this one, it came a lot more sort of front and center. Yeah. But also because you voice the main character... And given all these other questions we have where we talk about you getting into the head of Colo, I feel like this feels different than simply writing Star Dancer as non-binary or any of the other examples. Vocal verisimilitude in voice acting also counts for a lot. We'll talk soon enough about Alex voice acting Robin when we discuss The Princess Thieves in a few short months. But given it's a part of both characters' on-screen personality, being able to portray charisma and desire and make us feel it is of capital importance in an audio-only medium. Okay, so first up, Colo is pan rather mm-hmm. than bi. I remember it was a person uh, that you know very well who, uh, who signified themselves as that that made me go, huh. I might actually be Pan. Mm -hmm. And that makes Colo a Pan Panther. (laughs) Um, But uh, honestly, this just dates back to the outcome of the mountain and the viper. Anyone? Okay. Okay. Uh, Uh, Yes. Toby knows. Greg, have you ever sat down and watched a little known TV show called Game of Thrones? No. No, I I avoided that like the plague. Um, Not because... I heard many good things about certain aspects of storytelling, but you already know how I react to certain oh, yeah. forms there of There are trauma. bits in this yeah. that you would fucking hate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. This character was portrayed by an actor who made him so charismatic that despite the fact that this character only exists for a season, they then went on to be, I think, one of the most well-known faces in television now. Oh, yeah. Or indeed voices. Pedro That's Pascal. True. Yeah, okay. I can see Pedro as a bio icon. I've only seen him a couple of times in full face acting, but he was very watchable in Wonder Woman 1984 and The Bubble, even if neither movie was that good. Also, he was apparently a bit character in Buffy Season 4 back in the day, 
And holy shit, he looks so fresh-faced in that one. Vaya con Dios, Eddie. Oberyn Martell mm. is uh, the guy. Uh, nicknamed the Red Viper. He was, I believe he was married, and uh, he, he and his wife uh, invited people of every gender into their bed. And he was cool and charming and sly and a bit of a trickster, but uh, he was very passionate. He really, really, really wanted to fight the Mountain, who was a despicable rapist, a disgusting psychopath, of which there are many of in Game of Thrones. Mm. And um, because George R. R. Martin is very much kind of, ah, ah I didn't expect that, ah, uh, and very keen on keeping psychopaths alive and destroying, absolutely destroying characters that we love and care about, because, you know, shock factor will keep people coming back. There will be people saying, um, no, actually, that was the TV show that was all about shock factor. George R. R. Martin does the same fucking thing. And also, shock horror, he still hasn't released those last two books. That's the biggest shock and surprise. I did, in fact, read the very first book in the series. Mm. So, so did I. It's really good. I was, I was going into it informed, be like, okay, if the TV show is going to be like that... No, I'm not going to enjoy oh my, it. And then, the the course, TV show is so much less refined than that. Mm, mm. And it got worse and worse as it went along. I, I Effectively, the Mountain and the Viper scene was the bit where I went, okay, now I'm done. I, I, I watched up through the Red Wedding and went, that has shaken me to my fucking core. I am not watching this show again. And people kept going on and on and on about season four. So I was like, fine, I'll watch season four. But you're paying for it. And everyone had a whip round and got it for us on... Uh, uh, iTunes, uh, Apple, because uh, we, we couldn't get it in the UK. HBO doesn't exist. And the Viper wants revenge on the mountain. Mm. He, uh, His sister was raped and murdered by this fucking beast. This is the guy who, like, pressed his own brother, the hound's face down on a grill pan, permanently scarring him. He is terrible. The mountain is a big lumbering general kale looking motherfucker with a giant axe or a sword. I can't remember. He wore armor. He was a bruiser and he had nothing to him apart from he, he's the nemesis, I suppose, but without the charm of the nemesis. And uh, Oberyn Martell was much more of a sort of a, you know, whip quick, leaping in and out, spear wielding acrobat type. And he rather than going in for the kill as soon as possible, postured and embarrassed his opponent uh, in order to uh, give him a slow death and uh, and kind of cut at him repeatedly to, to reduce him. Because he wanted to take him down in a way that would just leave him forgotten, as opposed to this is a Pyrrhic uh, death for this monster. He approached and, it like a ritual. Yeah. He'd been stewing on this one for ages. And, you know, obviously he had an absolutely righteous cause. And there were, he was doing it on behalf of everyone who had been wronged by the mountain. And uh, the mountain got in a, a quick, sudden hit when he was uh, posturing too much, grabbed his head, smashed it on the ground, punched his teeth out so that he's screaming without teeth, gouged his eyes out with his thumbs whilst gloating about raping his sister, and then said, and then I smashed her head in like this. Then smashed Oberyn Martell's head in like a fucking watermelon while his wife in the distance screamed. And I went, that was the only bisexual hero we have. Fuck you. Fuck this show. Fuck this author. Fuck the entire culture around this shit. I'm going to write my own character and I'm not going to kill him. <sighs> and history turned me into a liar. Mm. Well, we'll get to that question, but... <laughs> but um, yeah, no, he wasn't like the French bisexual who is, my name is Pierre, I have come to have sex with your family, I'm 53. <laughs> it, it, he wasn't a sleazebag, he wasn't, you know, diseased, he was a really fucking ace, oh, ironically, uh, bisexual <laughs> character hero who could absolutely have carried on long after all of the, uh, the way too trusting Stark family have been like, oh, I just drink from this chalice then. You promise it's not poisoned. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe you tricked me with that one. <laughs> the strange thing about that whole scenario is a problem I had with several instances around that period of the show, which is that they dispatched characters who, over the course of the show, had been afforded actual presence and charm. And keep saying in, charm. Yeah, in the, in the book, they didn't have that repeated word of late. Oh, yeah. They were a bit more flat, and that 
may mean that their deaths don't necessarily hit us as hard. Mm-hmm. But that feels like a very flimsy excuse to say, ah, but you see, in the book, it was even more hollow. Yeah, I, I don't want to get into a massive uh, fight with, I mean... No. I... We're, there are we people are on the Discord who really, really like those books, and are, I am sad and disappointed for them. But yeah, I can't hide the fact that I feel nothing but disgust for George R. R. Martin. He is the most celebrated author of our age now beyond Joe Rowling, and both of them became insane because they got given all the food and pies and drinks and wine and praise and all the money in the world. And they were like, right, um, 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 prequels, prequels, can we do prequels? Yeah, yeah, prequels. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Keep, keep spinning it out. Keep spinning it out for more money. Anyway, sorry, little axe to grind there. in to... the mountains, fucking forehead. By the way, the mountains' eventual death really disappointing. It was kind of a nothing. Same as most of the villains in that show. That is how I think the greatest disparity in that show is the red wedding. Awful moments. It lingered in the pain so much so when we finally get the comeuppance for the family responsible for it it's over in two scenes mm-hmm. Ugh. Ugh. We, that, that is the sound let us as a palate cleanser come back to pant the boyfriends yeah sorry i don't know how much of that you're going to keep but uh yeah hey sometimes we need to vent but uh, honestly uh... I was kind of feeling around the edges with Robin, but because with Robin and Gwen, it was supposed to be a romance, I kind of didn't want to, like, I had Robin flirting uh, throughout the beginning, and I had it, like, really flagged that he was into larger ladies, just in the kind of, oh, I really hope that he gets together with Gwen, so that when it does happen, it's kind of crackling. Alex, are you saying there is a point where Robin goes, oh my god, a giant woman! (laughs) Yes. Uh, but I mean, like, if you're a, a Duart, most women are bigger than you. So, I mean, ultimately, uh, uh, Robin loves everyone who has uh, beauty inside them. And, um, you know, had I uh, been confident enough, I, think, I, I don't know, there weren't enough people for Robin to flirt with in the earlier parts of the book. Here's the core difference. Robin is one of the protagonists of The Princess Thieves. Mm. But The Princess Thieves is not his story. Yeah. Panther Soul very much is Colo's. You are constantly in Colo's head, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and we are seeing his multiple lives, the different parts of his entire existence in a collage. So this is the perfect platform to look at a life and with a sexuality that does ebb and flow, and there are so many people who have affected him. I also wanted to add a little bit of extra, like you almost wouldn't expect Cola would be uh, sometimes more tilted towards males and fancying them than, uh, than the ladies. The guide at the beginning. I pause and take off my pack as Dalesh moves in behind me. I unhook a rope woven from durable blue shrate vines. My guide's pretty brown eyes scan the log as she nods and takes one end of the rope, tying it around herself. I will go first, she declares. I live in ice. All the same, her voice is tremulous. Dalesh, performed by Shanta Parasuraman, is uh, the snow leopard who's terrified of ice and slipping and heights. And uh, I I wanted to, in in that scenario, turn around the idea of the indomitable Sherpa who uh, sort of guides you up there, doesn't speak that much. So, in opposition to someone like Tenzin from Uncharted 2, who was, I found out, based off a famous Nepalese Sherpa who was lauded multiple times for his role in multiple Mount Everest excursions. I'm sorry, I'm getting off track. At the same time, she's not just Willie Scott screaming and wailing, uh, you know, oh, this is not, not the stuff I like. She's been up here. She knows she doesn't like it for a reason, and she's not really certain of it. She sort of fell in love and under the spell of Colo and his... It's it's spelled out that uh, she, she kind of really wants to go adventuring with him. And mm-hmm. so, you know, she's a little bit infatuated. But when they get back and he fights Damar, her brother, because her brother challenges him, there is clearly an amount of uh, attraction on Colo's part to the mm-hmm. brother, whether the brother is interested or not. He throws himself at me, slashing, clawing, yowling in fury. 
I leap above his low blows, tapping him lightly upon the forehead and rolling aside as his movements become more frantic. His heart is strong and his form is skilled. He is as desirable as his sister. That's the thing. He's he's going to flirt and see what happens. So at the very, very end, when he comes back and gives the uh, the idol back, he kind of leaves and and the brother suggests a rematch and he kind of gives him a wink and a click and I added a little bit of Shanta Parasuraman just talking to me going, yeah, no, okay, I get it. You want a rematch? He asks, maybe sometime. I grin, looking him briefly up and down before departing for the mountaintop. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> That's Dalesh going, oh, so you're way more into my brother than me. Cool, cool. It made for a really fascinating counterpoint there in that during those opening sequences, you get the overall impression that Kolo doesn't simply flirt with anybody that comes up to him. Mm. And he does seem to respect Dalesh's intrepid nature, her courage. Mm. Um, but as soon as as soon as Damar enters the picture, he's just like, oh. Well, you're very forward, gentleman, challenging me to a punch-up. You're also very pretty. I can't help but notice that. <laughs> well, I also feel like for Colo, fighting doesn't always have to overlap with dating, but, you know, it could be a nice intertwining if it does occur mm. naturally. I mean, take into account how Colo related to Star Dancer, his first love, and the way their relationship was one part dance, one part combat, eventually culminating in the sort of scene clearly inspired by Simba and Nala in The Lion King. There is a turn, and they look into my eyes and begin to dance, alone, surrounded by tiny lights, as though the sky is softly raining embers. I am transfixed. The dance is feminine and elegant, not one I would expect from a boy. It tells me the story of a Katan that knows something nobody else will believe. They finish their dance, and their stance changes. Somehow they are masculine again. They stride back up the hill and fix me with a searching look. You like girls or boys? They ask. Something about the emphasis on like makes me stop and consider in a way I never have before. I think I like girls and boys, I reply. And it is as though a weight has been lifted from both of us. Stardancer smiles with relief before pouncing upon me in play. We roll down the hill to the dancing spot, kicking out at one another with our hind paws. I wind up underneath them. They are heavy for a leopard and for someone who can move so gracefully when the mood takes them. I win, they say with a flourish, then run their rough tongue up my left cheek. You I mean, this isn't to... the first time I've done that either, because Gwen was using uh, uh, fisticuffs as a substitute for sex for a long time. <laughs> that is a fascinating... Okay, you're, you're already giving me a whole bunch of uh, detail that we're going to have to get into. Oh, darling, <laughs> it's right there in the text. Yes. <laughs> Just right listen to how right drippingly, I think it's Loretta, narrates that particular scene. Yes, when she's training with the handsome gentleman Simon, who... Yeah. Yes, who Robin makes a pop comment of, hmm, he's also quite a... Uh, yeah. Yes. That yes. was like the one tell that I uh, sort of let slip on Robin. However, I am going to be able to explore uh, some of Robin's by slash pan past uh, in the next Princess Thieves book as we mm. meet Ooh, a to that certain Akka who will be played by Orion. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. Mm. Exciting. All right. I was Effectively, say, like, Disney aren't going to do the Lando thing, so fuck it, I'll do it. Again, again, it's like, okay, so Disney aren't going to do it, then I'll do it. There is entire libraries out there of Disney aren't going to do this, so we <laughs> may as well. <laughs> yeah. The term multifaceted can feel meaningless in media or character analysis. Very few things come across as truly singular in their focus or construction. 
all of your characters have depth and range to them, but it is clear that the concept of developing and inhabiting different persona is central to Colo's story. The structure of the book flows back and forth across Colo's timeline and marks the different lives that came to be throughout his journey. Would you tell us about the approach that you took in your vocal performance to exemplify the many modes of Colo and what you would always come back to in order to center the character? I figured that he'd have multiple lives and thus there would be multiple sides of personalities to him that would come through in them. It doesn't come across so much in the book. So I actually had uh, Leah add a line uh, where she says in a accusative way. Have you noticed your voice changes? She interrupts me, glaring. Depending on what you're doing and who you want to impress. Which is a kind of a way of deflecting people saying his voice is very inconsistent. It's absolutely intentional. I have, I'm looking at eight different voices here. He, there's mm. his heritage, which is African and Zulu. I can see inside the world. I spot horned Capra up here, searching for patches of grass exposed by the snow melting sun. Life atop desolation. Whenever he's talking about something to do with the past that he actually respects and whenever he's reaching deep into antiquity and actually kind of transcending even his treasure. Yeah, yeah, his raptitude comes through in that. He has a softer, more neutral internal voice narrating, which is it's a little bit James Earl Jones. It's a little bit um, Mm. T'Challa. It is tomorrow. I have claimed my prize and my satisfaction curls through me. I eat hot, spicy meats and prepare for my long journey onward. It is today. I must close the gap between these two times and discover what I did to attain this treasure. In fact, nearer the end, especially as he began to sort of comprehend his fate, I kind of gave him a little bit more Chadwick. Just yeah. a, a couple of times here and there, in the same way that I uh, modulated White's voice at times. Greg, I'm, I have to emphasize how restrained I was when I met Alex in person, and I didn't just have him do a bunch of the voices there in front of me. <laughs> I just decided to show him around Oxford and not have him be he a He did human not put me on the to... spot. No. <laughs> I feel like you missed out. <laughs> Alex, I got to meet you. I did not miss out in the slightest. Thank you. Also, you don't need to get Alex to do anything. He'll just do it at the drop of a hat. Yeah, you just need to kind of uh, put it in on the table in front of me. But I can't do this. Okay, I I suppose. Look, Greg, I feel like us starting a fan podcast, getting interviews and asking him pointed questions to talk about his various voices does not necessarily equate to the drop of a hat. This is the drop of an entire... Hattery. <laughs> <laughs> the drop of a hattery. Okay, right. Hang on. Let me get uh, what other uh, voices does he have? Um, oh, treasure hunting. Uh, when he's uh, uh, talking about fortune and glory, there's obviously a bit of an Indiana Jones twang, a bit of Harrison Ford that comes in there. He's expecting me with great anticipation, and if you waylay this boy any further, he's going to have you licking every crevice of his dusty wine cellar. It, there's also his boxing voice, which is not Muhammad Ali. It's uh, Michael B. Jordan as Creed, specifically mm. when uh, he's talking to uh, Maximus when he's a younger boxer. There needed to be that kind of, what you want, old man? You gonna put me in the ring? Because I might be a bad bet, old lion. I don't need you to fight anyone. I want an assistant. Somebody walk you around the city, a bodyguard? No, I'm thinking a little farther afield. I was after someone strong, obviously. You qualify. They're stronger. And fast. I'm definitely that. Cunning, daring, able to make split-second decisions. Again, plenty of quick and smart lions out there. Why'd you pick someone who could be punchy and let you down? That slight kind of, I don't care, you know, I'm just, you know, just this is just another day for me. I am not going to show enthusiasm for you. And then Maximus kind of has to draw it out of him. You greedy bastard. You got both T'Challa and Killmonger in your character. (laughs) Yeah. But if I'm doing a Black Panther 
inspired full production, I'm, I'm going to incorporate the elements that have blown me away in those uh, recent years. His socializing voice, you know, when he's talking to Beatrix and when he's talking to Leah, does land somewhere between his treasure hunting Indiana Jones and his boxing creed. Lady, listen, I can see how this guy could be a pain in the ass for you to live with, but I'm just grateful he got me out of there. I'll take any amount of hot and sticky if it means I'm not getting punched in the face for a living anymore. When he's boxing and actually has to really draw attention to it, when he has to call out to the crowd, he has to go showboating, and that's when I bring on Ali. I realized that I could not read the whole book in the narration and have him speak to people in the style of Muhammad Ali the whole time. Will Smith's performance as Ali has this kind of strange lilt to it, which doesn't necessarily fit with what I wrote for Colo. While I did try to bring that in occasionally in his speech, it most often surfaces when he is performing boxing poetry. But you can't catch me. I'm too fast for y'all. Last night I raced a moonbeam and won. I pounded a mountain so bad it's a valley. I'm so fast I could catch the shadow of your tail and lasso you with it. And uh, there's also the helpless voice when he's young. Mm. You get a uh, immature version of what would later become his speaking voice. But there are times when he becomes very small and very frail and very vulnerable. And even just narrating back to that internally... I flashed back to the first major uh, audio drama I did, which was Batman Breakdown. And when Bruce Wayne has to go back to Crime Alley in his head while being hypnotized, I pulled into a, a child performance. Can we all go together? I ask. Out there? Exploding? I don't know how well I do at those, but I... I Ultimately, it doesn't matter if it sounds a bit odd. The importance is the vulnerability, which I think comes across. And then the last one is Queen's English. He only employs it a couple of times, but it's when he's talking with Dashington and uh, Carstairs. And he suddenly starts talking like this to match them. And they know <laughs> he's mocking them. I think I'd like my house to be atop that tall mountainous area, I say, indicating out of the window. That way I can preside above the Albion lions who shall know that they live in my shadow. But it illustrates how chameleonic he, uh, he can make himself and how well he can absorb other cultures and then use them like weaponry. Use all the tools in the toolbox. Exactly. Also, also it's like... At that point, he's trying to get the really big house and therefore trying to talk like someone with a really important house in Basterian Wood. Leonidas, sorry, that was a misspeak. And But it's at the same time, I did say weaponry rather than uh, necessarily tools. He's deliberately trying to antagonize them. He's not negotiating. Mm. He knows that he has the upper paw here. So he's kind of jabbing at them just to see if they'll react. And it, it ties in with the fact that when he's like, oh, it's okay, you don't have to pay me for this one, and starts to slide the idol back towards himself, and Dashington sort of leaps out of paw and sort of, no, I really want it, I want it. <laughs> and he's made him blink. It's a poker game. Feels like a version of the opening scene in Temple of Doom, but mm. where Indy is much more in control than we ultimately see him be. Nurhachi is a real small guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, he drank from the poison chalice. Mm -hmm. How mm -hmm. dumb do you got to be? <laughs> I know how much you love talking about music, and in particular, the music choices that you make for New Century, and there's been some real incredible pieces along the way. The return to Rama means a return to Cat Kevin McLeod, but we also have a bunch of new pieces, including the title theme, Zod. What were you looking for to expand the world of Rama in terms of music instruments, themes, and types of music? Okay, so when I brought back Kevin McLeod, it was only ever to bring people back to a specific place from Tiger's Eye. I tried my best. I probably messed up, and maybe there was one or two that uh, I uh, didn't need to necessarily include that were brand new, but I tried my best to only revisit old Kevin McLeod when we were evoking old areas. 
like when the Yamaya village section uh, comes in, I don't call it Yamaya, but I play that music. So if you remember, you go, hang on, this sounds an awful lot mm -hmm. like. The piece Alex is referring to is called Decline, which I recently used for the horror homework episodes, utterly forgetting where I'd heard this piece from and focusing on its melancholy being the emotion I wanted to evoke. But since we're journeying out, and because Kolo is so very much coded as African panther, I wanted to get a, a bunch of African music in there. So I went uh, and found various libraries of, of African music that most often gets used in like travel journals, kind of throwaway stuff on uh, YouTube for sort of, you know, my backpacking journey across Zaire uh, with Thomas Cook sponsored by Mountain Dew. But with these, I wanted to tie them to an emotional core. And when we got to the desert, I wanted to sort of hone in on a more Arabic flavor and, uh, and just more of a sort of a Middle Eastern feel. And also see if I could harness that dune sensibility. Worst Star Trek film from the original six, the fifth one directed by uh, William mm. Shatner, Final Frontier. That starts on a desert planet, and it's uh, Spock's brother Cybok and a bunch of acolytes who are very similar to uh, Christian Bale at the beginning of um, Love and Chanda. But it has that strange kind of what's going on here, uh, in, in the same way that Frank Herbert's Dune kind of twins Arrakis and the Sandworms with some sort of godlike creature which is why you get those you know wonderful hunt zimmer organ and chanting moments in the first dune movie cannot wait for that second one but i wanted to get that feeling more than just going for indiana jones or the mummy it needed to be more kind of there's something going on out here and it's not just about adventure i, I also Obviously, uh, whenever we uh, went near tigers, tried to keep things uh, on the Asian side, and uh, I honed in on Tibetan sounds uh, for the uh, opening on the mountain and all of the uh, sort of the climbing up there. It, it needed to feel like we were kind of globe trotting, almost like you could actually, and you could actually, thinking about it, do the Indiana Jones red line as Kolo moves around the map on Rama. Cloudbreaker, of course, needed its own theme. That was uh, patterned after the Ark theme from Raiders of the Lost Ark, which if you watch that film, you know what you're listening for. I put a piece up uh, that was on YouTube about this, about it might be my favorite piece of John Williams music. It is incredible. And the actual piece that I found was tabletop audio. I wanted it to be rare and difficult to find and maybe no one's ever heard it anywhere else. But this one had that kind of level of creeping that started quiet and then it grew louder and more intense. So I knew that I had to hold back that last bit for the crescendo at the end.
and I, I you know it took a lot of self-control to never go too far into that but it's called shaman's hollow and it's spine tingling and it really worked when tied up with the blue flame and what happens to morgue because that's really what it's coming come down to the moment that they've got the cloud breaker it never comes back it's the blue flame Mm. that's the there's there's several switcheroos at the end you think it's going to be all about the cloud breaker it's the blue flame that takes so much and then there's colo's theme which is uh, one of the ones i had to pay top dollar for at uh, shockwave sound and that one I had just seen Aquaman, and I, I just loved that kind of bow, 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 bow sound to his. Like it, it had that synthy kind of a little bit Mass Effect, but then goes into rocking guitars just to show that he's like this dude who's also non-toxic. We've got this big adventure sound, and then the bow, now, now fires up. And it just, it, it kind of adds that extra oomph. You know how amazing the uh, Agent in Shanghai theme is for Rao. It is very memorable. It's so memorable. As soon as I play a little bit of it, your spine goes and you start thinking about Rao. There needed to be that for Colo, and it mm-hmm. took me a long time to find it. But like, mm. you're just going with my gut on the uh, Aquaman score. I thought, yeah, just find those guitars. Even though electric guitars don't feature anywhere else in the rest of the story. Just something <laughs> to show that he is a little bit sideways of this place. Like there are, there are things that he does, things that he says, ways he comports himself that he can't possibly have learned from anyone. And in fact, probably just made up himself. I think I recall you also mentioning the opening theme to Justice League Unlimited. Uh, there was a reminiscent energy So good. <laughs> it's that infectious, enthusiastic energy of a band of heroes just going out there that I feel with Panther Soul, whereas that was the sound that I felt with this in comparison to Tiger's Eye, where there was this thin, arcing line of light that was just going forward through a jungle. That was what I felt from that song, whereas Panther Soul feels like you've managed to get up above the jungle and you're now in the sky among the clouds. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. It, it, it does call to mind bird flight and uh, to a degree almost Avatar, but Honestly, I, I kind of like got everything I could from Avatar back in 2009 and went, okay, I will, I will do my own version of this at some mm. point. And then I did, and then I went far beyond it. And so when I came back and watched Way of Water, I was like, I mean, it was fine. If you like whales, you'll like that. But it's, <laughs> it's the most effective Pandora has ever been for me was on the Flight of Passage ride in Animal Kingdom in Florida. It was, you queue up for two hours and then you get to ride an Ikram in ways that they don't explain. They're like, oh yeah, you'll be beamed into the head of an an avatar who's out there. It's like, so they just got these sort of like meat puppets that are flying around on Ikram, Mm -hmm. just waiting for a tourist to jump into their head. (laughs) Are they around? Do they go to the sunken place? Is it just their meat? Then, but anyway, when you're actually there, it's incredibly immersive. There's a you know huge 3D effect. It's like the Back to the Future ride, but much more personal. And they use air and water and this sort of shifting bike that has kind of breathing lungs between your knees that really right. give you a sense of being there. And Victoria can attest, when I got out, I kind of knelt down on the ground and touched the floor just to remind myself I was on Earth still, because that was amazing. And it kind of blew both the James Cameron films out of the water. We need that setup for the new game that's coming out, right? Yeah. Just, just get one of those for your home. It'll be uh, <laughs> about the same price as the uh, Steel Battalion joystick. <laughs> you know what came to mind when I was thinking of the Panther Soul music and theme? 
I was thinking, oh man, I've got to put that on when I'm next booting up Tears of the Kingdom. Yeah. Or, yeah. <laughs> uh, on a side note, if either of you guys want me to set you up with a soundtrack, a complete comprehensive soundtrack of Panther Soul or any of the others, I can do that. You have my number. I yeah. <laughs> put that idea to one side. I would definitely be very intrigued with that, especially as I continue to uh, edit through the window. And people on Discord may be well aware he did do that. And that is why this episode is as well scored as it is, because I could not get several of the necessary tracks from YouTube. There was a musical piece, and I don't remember exactly what it was. I feel like it was around chapter 29 or chapter 30 when I was paying maximum attention to everything that was going on because it was so very goddamn emotional. Listening to it made me feel the same way that Adagio and D did in Sunshine. Holy God. Mm. Which one? I like I need to go back and actually listen to it because maybe it's maybe it's Shaman's Hollow because you did put an emphasis on that a moment ago. I feel like I was associating it with the blue flame, mm. which would be a natural connection because Adagio and D comes in right as Celine Murphy's character is is facing off with the intense fire of the sun and everything like that. Mm. I, I, I just remember I had a huge emotional effect on me. As it turns out, the musical piece I was reacting to, I heard in chapter 30, when Kolo was facing himself in the blue flame, and again when Leah was having emotional overwhelm in chapter 34. But it wasn't until I got Alex's soundtrack that I realized I had heard this piece before, months ago, during the final fight with Dakota. This isn't to say that that scene wasn't as powerful at the time, but I think I was so overcome with the emotionality of Kolo's internal struggle that I really heard it for the first time, and made a mental association between the two pieces. To those that haven't realized it by now, the piece you are listening to isn't the music from Panther Soul. It is Adagio in D, which is a far fuller sound overall than the piece in question, called Circle of Life by Old. But now, I will play for you that moment from the audio drama, and maybe you can see why I made this connection. I yearn to hear her delighted laugh. One, two. Did I hurt you? <laughs> the thought of that makes me smile. I breathe once more. Do not touch him. The air feels cool once more. I really will keep Alice. The tattoos on my arms now glow faintly once more. All the way. They flash now, somewhere between blue and red. All the way. My fur is singed but remains glossy. I believe you. I stumble upright for a moment and tumble through the blue to the empty steps behind it. I'm sorry. I cannot stand. The price is going to be a promise. But I live. Clearly, it stuck with me, and music doesn't often do that, so I want to highlight it. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've always been so good at picking intensely appropriate musical pieces. Thank you. I like that. Intensely appropriate, this feeling <laughs> of that it is taking you to quite emotive and high energy parts of the soul while feeling like it fits into the shape that we have laid out before us perfectly. That is one of my skills. I, I cannot make music for the life of me. I I, uh, I owned and tried to learn to play guitar at one point. I tried to learn to play piano at one point. Mm. Yeah, I tried to play, learn to play recorder at one we, point. 
We do so much media analysis, just Greg and I, you and Sharon, just us collectively as a community. Music is the one artistic medium that I just cannot fathom the constructive process of. I just don't know how people do it. I can feel a scene playing out, either if I'm watching it in a film with it, when it already has music and sound effects, or if I'm crafting it myself uh, and it doesn't get have music, and I can go, right, what's the feel of this? And that might be actually the thing that I'm best at. You have that rhythm, I think, that sort of allows you to sort of sync up mm. environment with sound. How to monetize that music supervisor? That in in a in in a film production, it's music supervisor. But by and large, those are people who are themselves musical. They understand tempos and beats, and they can kind of craft it. All I do is like Quentin Tarantino, jump into my record collection and go, "Yes, that one works perfectly." I'm lucky if I can manage that kind of syncopation. Obviously. I try to pick music for the end of every Through the Wind Door that I feel works with whatever we're talking about or works with the feeling. The one time that I felt it worked really well, which Alex will be hearing relatively soon, was when I was trying to capture an emotion that I felt in the middle of the edit, where it just felt like, okay, I'm going to include this commentary now, and not being able to share what I wanted to share and I thought to myself, is there a sound effect that goes with the feeling of a bottomless pit in your stomach? And because I've been watching a lot of Super Eyepatch Wolf content recently, I ended up grabbing the main theme from the indie RPG Fear and Hunger, which has dark fantasy elements mixed with stuff more at home in Cthulian stories. I've got to that part of the edit, Greg. I don't say this on recording so that the rest of our listeners can actually hear this, but I, you don't need me to tell you. You have heard it yourself. Greg has far more of an ear and a soul for musical synchronicity than I think he is giving himself credit for because he has introduced me to a lot of songs that I have not been familiar with myself. I think the only musical contribution I've done in the entire history of this show was what has, I guess, become the theme of highly emotional Toby moment is just the Undertale Undertale track. Mm -hmm. But uh, <laughs> Greg is fantastic at being able to search his data banks of things that have stuck with him and apply it in a new context. And that's what I always love about what you're describing here, Alex, which is that we have all of this as a collective human society. We have access to an infinite amount of emotional expression and they're already significant. But when you change the context and the application of it, it just creates new cocktails. You cannot replicate that. And that is the pitfall that you get whenever you see people aping highly successful examples of it the yeah. guardians of the galaxy awesome mix and yeah the and all the copycats of that that just followed mm. and you're like hey, let's just throw a bunch of needle drops in there that's not what gun was doing no mm -hmm. no 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 nothing was thrown mm. it was selected and placed and cohesive to a statement. That is what resonates. That is what gets people to forever associate a particular song with a particular moment to the extent that they will never be able to hear that song without being transported instantly to its application. What do you think I think of when I listen to Miracle of Sounds, a London town? Assassin's Creed Syndicate, great game. Oh. I think of <laughs> the alternative, which we will be getting into in a season of Through the Wind Door very soon. I cannot wait. <laughs> Neither can uh, we. Yeah, it's very true. Like, I want to finish. You've got to eat your steam heart vegetables first <laughs> before you can have the Christmas, sorry, Princess mm. Thieves pudding. Well, mm, okay. Steamed greens. <laughs> steamed green hollow. It's, oh, no. It, 
there's nothing appetizing in here at all. All it does is shoot you. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I am so sorry. It's okay. It, it's just that that's the most difficult part of the story. It's anyway. Moving on. I had a thesis to. I wrote up a thesis in order to avoid having to talk about Green Hollow. Yeah. Oh, so that's what this is all about. Yes, I think I, I wrote Green Hollow at a time when so many com video game companies, in particular, were saying we don't want to be political, and it's like mm -hmm. you do realize that everything you're doing is politically charged. You're just doing it in favor of the status quo and the delusion that war is natural and permanent and not something we can, in fact, evolve beyond. Coming soon. Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3. No, not that one. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> All right. Let's get back to this list of questions because we were meant to be very focused, weren't we, Greg? Yes, we were meant to be. Never ends up happening. <laughs> Said with a familiarity of experience. All right. The passage of time on Rama is always a little difficult to accurately pass when attempting to apply our human measurement of time to it, rather than the broad concepts of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That's partly why the reveal of Stardancer being Krau's missing child sneaks up on us, because it was never made exactly clear just how long ago that happened, and how long Krau has been carrying this grief. There was a fantastic moment on the Discord in the recent past when Nama, who was, had been going through Tiger's Eye for the first time, was saying, oh, wow, has this been a fair while? And Greg and I had to just hold ourselves back and go, mm, yep, the passage of time has a bit of a significant element in the next book. Anyway, back to my question. Pandasol includes a much more comprehensive timeline to cover, including so many more yesterdays as we go through Kolo's lives, not to mention the lives of others. Is there a written-in-stone calendar of events for your own use, or if not, how do you keep it all straight in your head? I'm sure I've said this before. I have a comprehensive timeline of all the events of the New Century Multiverse, and it is now, I was going to put originally hundreds of entries long, that's not true, because a lot of times I sort of crystallize it down to a specific era, but it is definitely dozens of entries long. It allows me to check what had happened before this, what had happened after this, what was happening at the same time. But notably, keeping things vague allows me to hone in later and add unseen detail that hasn't been thought of yet. Same with <laughs> geography, hence no maps. If I drew a map, of the region that Colo and company explored and the region that uh, Hrau and Miguel explored in Tiger's Eye and matched them up and went, um, I'm just going to draw all the other stuff. This is all the other stuff in Rama. I would then have to hold to that map. And I'd also have to map it very carefully and scrupulously against North and South America and Canada and Alaska. And I'd have to make sure that it all, all matched. Frankly, no maps until I'm done. Honestly, the argument here makes sense as regards maps, but I did feel like this was a question worth asking, because Alex did make a map for the traveling in Secret Rose. There was no map for Steamheart's journey, but as a part of our research for the retrospective, I did take into account things like the distance from D.C. to Jackson, Mississippi, and things more or less lined up with the information given. So I thought such a map was possible, but it would also be a much bigger undertaking. Likewise, I remember the timeline that Alex had set up for all of Phase 1. But while that timeline on the website includes things like when the epilogues of Arlington, Steamheart, and Secret Rooms take place, it does not include the myriad flashbacks that are a part of those stories, such as James, Annie, and Lucy first coming to Weirwood. On that timeline... The story of Tiger's Eye takes place over the course of March through May of 1883. And according to what Miguel tells us in Steamheart, that's exactly the amount of time between when Miguel first went through the Windor, title drop, to his return with Frau in Steamheart. That timeline does not include the yesterdays of Miguel, Frau, or Haka. So in the case of our two tigers, we don't actually know how old they are, or indeed, for certain, how long the cats of Rama live. And to be honest, we don't need to know. 
and if Alex knows, he doesn't need to tell us precise dates and times, particularly if he wants to keep it fluid for now. But given how I know Alex puts a lot of work into crafting beforehand, as we'll get into with Back in Time Plus Space, I was curious what he would say about the matter. Mm. I have a question. What about the cover of Planets of the Cats? That is... Allegorical? Figurative. Yes. Mm. The, the continents are shaped like cats. It's it's not real. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I would accept it. If you told me that was how this world was shaped, I would buy it. <laughs> hmm. uh, I, I will say that is a suggestion of what Rama would look like. But space isn't pink. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> There's no mist in the galaxy. Ding. Yeah. The next one up from Flat <laughs> Earthers oh, is right. Space Pinkers. <laughs> Space Pinkers. Phrasing, I think. I'm not sure. Whatever. I'm moving beyond this. So you have a sense of the eras with enough space to allow for invention and... Flexibility? Flexibility, uh, yes. Im improvisation. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that there was another point beyond that. Uh, I did not improvise well enough <laughs> it seems <laughs> well let's drill down just a little bit more because we tend to see everything in the heads of the cats that perceive time in a very specific way first Rao in the first book and then colo in the second one it all keeps itself in this vague yesterday today tomorrow concept but we still have the cats of Albion and potential other civilized, so to speak, civilized nations like the conquistadors of El Gato. And yes, I will bring that up every single goddamn time. <laughs> but do they have a calendar that you would you could match, say, the calendar of Century Up against? <sighs> um, I would say that the eastern continents and Albion have something approaching the Gregorian calendar. Mm-hmm. All right. We that they will have need... measured uh, the... They, they will have had astrologers measure the uh, rotations. They would have worked out a similar system. It might be that their weeks are 12, 13 days long or something. But at the same time, I do actually mention weeks and months, I think, when mm. uh, the, uh, the, the lions are talking. So it's probably fair to say that they came up with something very, very similar. Okay. But the significant thing is that the cats of the western continent didn't or at least specifically the nations around the point where Rao lives mm -hmm. have almost certainly had a system like that and abandoned it because mm. there are many repeated teases of ancient worlds and uh, ancient advanced civilizations oh i'm trying to try not to spoil anything here that <clears throat> damn we almost got him <laughs> the complications of which could be stepped back from. Mm. And Name asked a, a very fair, pertinent question, which is like, they, they, they have to be at a count, right? And um, I can't remember exactly what I said, but uh, it, it, it comes down to, yes, they can, but there are, this was inspired by the fact that there are, in fact, uh, tribes in the uh, Amazon who can count up to one, two, and loads more than two. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was it. Yeah, uh, Name was asking, "How do they store meat? Now, how, do, how do they keep it in date?" I think it was Name uh, asked that, and uh, my response was, um, "They eat it real quick as soon as they can. It's a jungle. It's uh, they don't have any uh, anywhere particularly cool, and uh, you know, also they're they're cats. They can smell when meat is bad. They, mm -hmm. you know, they don't need the dates like we humans do. And then also, they're not selling them." On, on store shelves it's just it's kept to the people who actually run the food stores to work that out probably kind of part of the reason why in tiger's eye the uh quartermaster that crowd kept bringing meat to was like okay you you're you're doing very well you don't need to keep bringing us meat are Sashel. we going to be able to eat yeah. it's actually yes are we going to be able to eat it all um before it goes bad might be going on in the back of their head Exactly. And uh, that's the that's the thing. Rao is the one who uh, kind of upsets that by mm -hmm. overfilling their stores. Yeah. Look, I just wanted to hunt. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone heard you. That's great. <laughs> I'm helping. I'm helping. 
I think I, I compared uh, Rao before. To, like, if you imagine just someone who is a workaholic, who throws mm. himself so bodily into their job, just a regular human woman, Rao does that. I would like to think it's relatable. A lot mm. of people reading or listening will be able to relate to a feeling of avoiding something by throwing yourself way too much into something else yeah there are parallels that i can draw between tiger's eye and trow and uh the babadook and the main lead in that the idea of i am fine i never talk about him anymore it's like that doesn't sound fine the study of someone who is definitely trying very hard to be fine in a way that reads as very much not that. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that's the end of part three of our Shaw's interview. Next time, we'll wrap it up with a final installment, which will include some reprisals from Willow and Sharon, and hopefully, a final surprise. But since this episode would end up a little short in comparison to part four, I decided to include now the final round of Panther Soul bloopers that Alex provided. And to finish us off... A little piece that I've been saving. It will be familiar to some, but for now, the only hint I will give is that sometimes you are seeking out history, and sometimes you are making history. If you attempt the walk and survive, you may succeed, but at a cost to yourself. That sounds entirely too Scottish. At a cost to yourself? I mean, I could do this with a Scottish accent, but you know... I might just run too fast and trip over me daddies. We dart and spin and whirl, dodging her blows and barraging her with our own. She was in a place of vulnerability, and we have her unbalanced for a few moments, yowling and fur- Yowling and furry. <laughs> yowling and furry. I don't know why that's so funny. Got a pot of stew on the stove and the smell is making me a little punchy. Okay, I'm hungry. Where was I? She was in a place of... <laughs> shit. They will be released into the desert once we can be sure the area is free of lions. We want none falling into the bondage under their... Will you tell them? Nah. Will you tell them? Nah. <laughs> Hate that. Our lost mother has returned. Our lost mother. Oh my god, that was... W-N-B-C. Wow. Eventually, the Red Claw Scouts return with the last of the lions, bound and in a sorry state. I think a bird just smacked into my window. Colo, please remember how merciful I was. Shrike would have had you all executed. I told you in the clearest terms how much I actively sought to avoid bloody conflict and needless loss of life. I want you to keep on living. No! And just for fun... Looks like Sir Dashington's blasting off again! Can you hear my heartbeat? Tired of feeling never enough I Close my eyes and tell myself that my dreams will come true. There'll be no more darkness when you believe in yourself. You are unstoppable. Where your destiny lies, dancing on the blade, you set my heart on fire. Don't stop fast now. The moment of truth, we were born to.
Stop fast now, the moment 